Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. tuned into sci-fi fidelity the podcast that brings you monthly science fiction television discussions and interviews remember to follow den of geek on twitter and facebook at den of geek us and we are at sci-fi fidelity this is episode 10 for october of 2016 my name is mike and i'm dave and in this edition of sci-fi fidelity we'll be talking about what expectations both good and bad that fans might have when tv shows are adapted from different types of source material books movies and comics We'll also be sharing our initial impressions of Westworld on HBO and Channel Zero on Sci-Fi. And our interview segment today will be from the show Falling Water, one of the three leads and basically the character who really, I think, steals the show. David Ajala, who plays Burton on that show, will get a chance to talk with him about the new series that's just starting up this week. And in fact, a couple of the shows that we're talking about are pretty brand new. Westworld's only had two episodes and... Channel Zero starts tonight as we're recording this podcast on Tuesday. Right. And we've had a chance to see Falling Water, and it's a pretty interesting show. And as you said, um, now I'm not sure I would agree that he's the lead of the three. I, I like all three of them. Oh, no. He's not the lead. I just said he kind of steals the show. Okay. <laughs> I well, just think he's the best character, in, okay. my, in my opinion. <laughs> but yeah, we'll get a chance to talk to him. And um, we did actually see or I did, uh, the Falling Water cast and producers at New York Comic-Con this past weekend. I was able to attend the convention, and Falling Water was represented there. David Ajala was uh, doing some theater in the West End of London at the time, so we didn't meet him, but did get a chance to talk to a lot of the cast members and and Gail Ann Hurd and Blake Masters, the executive producers. And it just seems like they really have their stuff together and their strategy for moving forward with this very different style of show. But before we get into any of the shows that we're going to be talking about, let's share with you the time codes for today's topics in case you need to avoid spoilers. Source material expectations. 236. Westworld. 2237. Channel Zero. 3737. Interview segment. 4753. But of course, the first topic has no spoilers whatsoever. It's just about... Shows that are based on other source materials, books, movies, and comics, and what expectations people might have coming into it. And some of the things that we've noticed, mostly with regard to comics shows, is starting to bleed into other shows as well, where I think the fandoms have started to want certain things, demand certain things, and it's really changing the way that we look at these adaptations. Well, it does. And, and, you know, before we even get too far into it, is it different now? I mean, have things changed? It, it doesn't always seem as if in the past that we depended on source material, that there were actually 
original ideas that went directly <laughs> from the writer's room to the small screen. I do think we're having a much larger prevalence of adaptations and proven properties have become the norm in terms of green lighting a project. So yeah, you're right. I don't think it was always that way. You had a lot more original scripts and screenplays being written. Not to mention reboots and reimaginings. Yeah, it's almost like all the good ideas were already done and we just have to reinvent them. Or that's the easy way out, one of the two. Yeah, exactly. But um, the difference that we've noticed, and this goes back a ways, this discussion topic has been on the table for a while as a possible thing that we would talk about on this podcast, because when The Expanse and The Magicians came out, these were two pre-existing novel series that sci-fi chose to adapt, one science fiction and one fantasy. And they couldn't be more differently adapted to the screen. And I just thought it was interesting that you could take different source materials, adapt them in different ways, and change the audience expectations based on how well you did it. Yeah, and I'm sort of at a a disadvantage here because, of course, you have read The Expanse novels. I'm not sure how many there are. Have you read them all? I am in the middle of the last one, and a new one comes out in December. And I've read all three Magicians books as well. Right. So, you know, I can't really speak to them, and I, and I know you will, but certainly Childhood's End. Another sci-fi property. <laughs> is that one, you know, we already podcasted about with Gold Spiral Media. And, you know, you mentioned you felt it was too daunting to adapt, which is sort of ironic because as far as science fiction novels go, it's fairly short, under 300 pages. Right. It, but it's just so philosophical, I guess you could say that it was really interesting to see how they would adapt it. But basically going into any of these shows, Childhood's End, whatever we want to talk about, the question is, what do viewers expect from a TV show that's based on a book that they've read? Because I think it's different than when you go into a movie theater of a movie that's based on a book, because you always have heard your friends say, uh, it wasn't as good as the book when they go into a movie. And that's probably always going to be the case because of the two hour time frame. But when you have a TV show that can expand upon it for a longer period of time, you can be truer to the source material. But the question is, do people expect that or should they want that? And are they willing to accept certain changes or full scale changes like the type we see on The Magicians? And I think for the most part, audiences have been very accepting. Well, I think they almost have to be, especially if you expect the TV series to last more than one season, because obviously the book is finite. So unless it's a multi-book series, which of course The Expanse and Magicians are, but not all. I mean, Childhood's End is certainly a standalone novel. Right. And then there's ones that are just in the spirit of things. It's not a genre show, but Elementary is an example of a Sherlock Holmes adaptation TV show that chose to change Watson into a female. And I think at the time when Elementary was first starting, this was a pretty radical idea that wasn't necessarily universally accepted. And yet that show has done quite well for itself. And do you feel, Dave, that as time goes by, people are more willing to accept gender changes, such as we've seen, uh, not not a uh, book one, but in, for example, CW's Frequency, where they changed Jim Caviezel's character to a girl? Well, I, I think, yes, in general, viewing audiences are going to be more accepting of gender changes. As long as the book is not, 
I don't want to use the word iconic already in this discussion, but I, <laughs> I guess I kind of have to, depending on how iconic the series is or the novel is. I mean, it could be a problem. And probably not as much of a problem would be if you added characters. I think that's something that people are used to. And Childhood Zen certainly did that with the wife that influenced a lot of his decisions in that book or in the in the uh, TV adaptation. So you certainly can add characters, but changing characters that are already beloved and people expect things to be a certain way, that's where it gets a little bit problematic. But I think it's interesting to note that the Expanse, for example, which has been very true to the James S.A. Corey novels, has taken some changes to characters such as Amos Burton, who in the TV series is almost antagonistic with James Holden. But in the books, they are fast friends, even though Amos does have some violent tendencies. So when you take liberties like that, I think there are some eyebrows that get raised because it's personality that gets changed. And that's, I think the one thing that you don't want to mess with, even if you change the gender. Right. And when you think about it, look, the shorter television series these days are maybe eight to 10 episodes. So you're, you're talking 400, 450 minutes, which is essentially the equivalent of close to three full length feature films that you almost have to expect that they're going to, as you suggest, add characters, add storylines and to just stay true to the original source, it's rather difficult. And I think, as I think you're alluding, that, yes, we are more prone to accept it these days. And I think just because it, it's been going on longer, you look at we, – we talked many times about this being a renaissance in science fiction television. Oh, yeah. So I, I think because, you know, we have so much out there, we're, we're starting to get used to it. Right. And, and before we move on to movies and – comics as adaptation source material. I just have to say, because we're using the magicians and the expanse as our examples, I mean, how different the magicians took huge liberties with the storyline. They almost had to because of the scale of the novel with gods and, and magic being thrown around on a much grander scale, but they took characters that weren't in the novel, uh, changed the name of certain characters just because of some of them were too similar to each other to make them more recognizable and yet still being true. I think to the spirit of a lot of those characters has made the magicians quite successful. And on the flip side, you've got the expanse also a well-loved show that has paid a very close homage to the original. And possibly that's because James S. A. Corey, which is a uh, writing team of Ty Frank and Daniel Abraham are on the writing staff, a rarity in television. And in fact, I think maybe because they are a team already when they're writing novels, they're used to writing on a writing team because they are a writing team, you know? Well, sure. And Harry Potter did okay, sticking <laughs> slightly fairly close to the novels. Yeah. And that was a movie. It's tough to do it with movies. I think TV shows do have an advantage with books because of the length. But what about movies? Since you mentioned Harry Potter, that obviously was a movie adaptation of a book. But nowadays we're talking about reboots a lot. And people are going to the movies, such as, you know, 12 Monkeys being a big example, and completely reinventing it, such that you almost forget the original movie that it was based on. <laughs> it becomes its own beast. Well, sure. And look, you know, you mentioned that line that you hear all the time. Well, it wasn't as good as the book. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Movies tend to be much more critical from the standpoint of being based on books. But do you think people are becoming more accepting of 
movies being changed into TV shows, especially if they have a certain iconic status? Uh, there's that word again. Well, I, I do, because I think we all agree with Ezekiel Jones that, I mean, movies are just books with better pictures <laughs> and fewer of those words and stuff. That's from the librarians, in that case you missed that library. reference. <laughs> but he's got a point. No, I totally agree. And because you've now got properties like Westworld on HBO, I mean, I think that is a hit just about to burst out of the gate. I mean, I think everyone agrees that it definitely has hit on all cylinders. And that's based on a 1973 movie that is vastly different from anything that has been reinvented, whether you're talking about 12 Monkeys or Minority Report that you know, was a little bit more recent, a 1973 movie. Wow. I mean, that took some real updating. Right. But they did. I mean, and again, when I say they did, uh, I've only seen episode one, episode two aired last night. I just haven't gotten around to seeing it yet. So, you know, it remains to be seen, but it's not as if they completely abandon the source material, the 1973 Michael Crichton film. No, in fact, they were surprisingly true to it. And of course, I'm sure you'll get into it when we talk about Westworld as a full discussion point for TV shows that we're watching currently. But this is a movie that needed an update if it was to work. And I think that's been true for a lot of movie adaptations is they bring it into the modern world. They make it so that it can have a serial plot and maybe even expand upon ideas that were left hanging in the movie by necessity. Right. And they acknowledge some of the issues that came up in the film. But as you said, that they dropped enough possibilities in the pilot to extend throughout the season. Right. And I, I just couldn't believe in Westworld how many nods to the original movie there were, even though they changed some characters from human to host and back again. You know, there was uh, quite a mix up. But, but, you know, one thing I wanted to say about movies, and, and again, I, I don't necessarily think these movies fall into the you either loved them or you hated them. But the Hunger Games movies, Divergent, both of which stayed fairly true to the novels, both geared towards younger audiences who perhaps expect faithfulness to the source material. On the other hand, as you mentioned, Divergent, they're going the TV route with the fourth book, right? Are or they? The, or the last book, yes. Oh, this is news to me. Okay. And apparently Shailene Woodley's not crazy about doing TV, so I think that's... Uh, yeah. I think they're going ahead with it, but but you know, the, the one novel series that I just wanted to mention is Isaac Asimov's Foundation, which was, it's not Christopher Nolan, it's the other Nolan, that was supposed to be developing it for HBO, and that was 2014-15, and we haven't really heard anything since, and you talk about daunting tasks. Oh my gosh, yes. Wow. <laughs> and, 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 you know, that's hardcore science fiction, so I'm not sure they're going to get leeway to deviate too much from the source. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that. It reminds me of when they tried to do Dune as a movie, Frank Herbert's novel, and it was terrible, the one with Sting. And then they, and then Sci-Fi Channel, back when it was called Sci-Fi Channel, did a Dune adaptation as a miniseries, and wow, was it good. I mean, you know, I, I think remember. It, if you just do a little bit more expanded to give it its full due, and of course nowadays people binge watch stuff anyway, so it's basically like watching a 10-hour movie if you've got 10 episodes sometimes. So that's why I think it, it works really well for expanding on books or movies. But Dave, our final topic actually is the one that gets us in the most trouble because you and I do a podcast for Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. 
And I have very strong feelings about how comics should be treated as source material because I think people love to see familiar heroes and villains in their television shows. But the way that some of them, not all of them, in fact, a a very small minority of them are being treated, it's as though they're just using the name of the character to draw in viewers or to excite viewers and then not even being true hardly at all to the original character as they appeared in Marvel or DC Comics. To Kill a Mockingbird, Bobby Morse. Oh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah, exactly. Bobby Morse is one of the best examples of where they took a comics character, a Marvel comics character, gave her the same weapons, never called her Mockingbird, and really never did anything with that as a superhero. They just wanted to basically give a nod to the comics, which some people that might be enough for them. But for me, I just think it's, it's almost exploitive. Well, and you speak of exploitive, that's, I think what most of us would feel about the ill-fated most wanted series that on again, off again, now it's dead in the water. And what were they planning to do again, play on comic fans buying into Mockingbird, even though they've never referred to her as Mockingbird. Yeah, exactly. And so I don't know, how do people feel out there? How do genuine comics fans feel about it? Are they okay with it? That's my main question, because there are plenty of bad examples that I can think of off the top of my head. One of them, my most uh, fervent hatred came when Agent Carter introduced Madam Mask, who was absolutely nothing like the character in the comics whatsoever. They just gave her the same name. And then there are other examples too. I didn't, I wasn't a big fan of red tornado in Supergirl season one, for example, nor was I a big fan of how Dr. Light was portrayed in season two of the flash. Any examples that pop into your head as not so great? (laughs) Well, I mean, so far it, it remains to be seen. Obviously they introduced ghost rider to the current season of Marvel's agents of shield. And that's good. And I was going to say, so far, I'm really liking it. But to be fair and and full disclosure, I'm not a comics guy at all. So I really have no preconceived notions other than what I read in the press. Exactly. But we do our research, you know, when it comes to talking about Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. We enjoy that show for its own sake. But I think when it's the most well portrayed is when the character is true to the comics and They come across well to the non-comics reader. And one of the best examples of that that I thought of was Kilgrave, played by David Tennant and Jessica Jones. I'm not sure there is a more villainous character out there and just so well done. So I, I don't even know how to describe his character. And I don't know how he was in the comics if he came across as that frightening yeah, and well, it's interesting to note, Kilgrave was an ongoing character. Ghost Rider is going to be an ongoing character, and a lot of the villains that really did a good job, and it's mostly villains, communicating their original character from the comics were ongoing characters. So the one-offs, I think, are the ones that suffer, like Red Tornado, for example. Dr. Light was in a few of episodes of The Flash, but, you know, Gotham has Penguin. I mean, Oswald Cobblepot is great in that show. He's one of the best villains that the show has in fact better in some cases than the heroes that are portrayed on the show right and you take a character like penguin how can you have a batman show <laughs> yeah w- without penguin 
and the fact that we get to see his origin story to me makes it even better yeah and that's really where the strength of gotham is as even a show that we don't really care for that is one of its strengths but i have to ask you dave of the various villains that they've had in arrow and the flash especially arrow because arrow's been on longer who has been your favorite well-portrayed comics character in that series well probably razor ghoul and uh, i'm not sure it's because john barrowman portrayed him <laughs> at the beginning because of course it's it's not necessarily a person as much as it is a position right exactly <laughs> but i thought deathstroke was really well done i watched arrow only for the first part of it so deathstroke was a big part of my enjoyment of that show in season one and of course that character did evolve quite a bit over the seasons but I just liked that it looked very similar to the comics, the character, even though the characters' origins were completely different. It really was, was well portrayed. And in Flash, I actually really liked Zoom, even though the storyline of Zoom didn't really go to places I enjoyed. But the idea of him and how powerful he was and, and how dominating he was in the speedster field was really cool. Yeah, it, but but it did get bogged down in the narrative. But but yeah, I agree. He, the the character was pretty cool. So comics in general, and, and there are of course many 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 other examples. How true do they have to be to the comics for the comics people to enjoy, and how true do they have to be to the comics for the casual viewer? Everyone comes to it with different expectations, but it seems to be its own separate animal these days. As adaptations go, as viewer expectations change based on whether it's based on a book or movie or comics. And it's just really interesting to watch. I think for the most part, I think we could say globally that as long as the characterization or the plot change or the adaptation change serves the story that has been established in the TV show, we're good. Just don't shoehorn in a character just to serve a purpose, either from the source material or away from it. And I wonder at this stage, and this would sort of be the reverse of what you might think, is that ordinarily the older generation is less accepting of change. But I think when it comes to source material, science fiction, television, films, I think the older generation is probably more accepting, and it's the younger generation that that really feels cheated if it's not a faithful rendering of the source. Really? And I'm not sure if I agree with you on that, only because of reaction to things like the female version of Ghostbusters, for example, <laughs> even though that's not exactly in the same vein as what we're talking about. So, yeah, I think sometimes nostalgia gets in the way and the older folks actually are obstacles to that and they're conservative in their ways. But, yeah, it's interesting because I think the young people also have a different culture that they grow up in with their entertainment on television. So, yeah, you could be right. But it's interesting that we chose that as our topic, or it was probably because you were going to be talking about Westworld tonight that I chose that as our discussion topic. But Westworld is a show that you and I both immediately enjoyed, greatly anticipated. I mean, we almost knew that it was going to be one of the uh, shows that we were going to enjoy this year. And boy, has it gotten off to a great start. Well, I'm not sure there has been a more highly anticipated show than Westworld. I mean, maybe The Return of the X-Files, but that said, Westworld on HBO really knocked it out of the park. I've not seen any review that was less than spectacular 
they put it in the Sunday night nine o'clock slot, which was previously occupied by Game of Thrones. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> and it debuted on October 2nd. So episode two just aired a day ago. So we're just going to be talking, though, about the premiere in terms of spoilers, just to establish the show. We're not going to get into episode two, which I've only seen part of and Dave hasn't seen at all. <laughs> right. And, you know, like a number of shows, including Humans, which is a show near and dear to our hearts, and we nearly ended up podcasting about it. Yeah. It explores artificial consciousness. And at what point do we consider an artificial consciousness in the same way we do a human being? This is the term android, right? A robot that looks like a person. Correct. So we're set in the near future and we take the viewer inside a world in which every desire can be indulged. So if, if you're unfamiliar, Westworld is basically an amusement park for rich adults. Every whim can be indulged, whether sexual, violent, whatever. Right. And it's interesting that they place it in the aspect of an amusement park on a vast scale, especially since the original uh, movie was a Michael Crichton property. So he must have something about amusement parks because he had Jurassic Park too. Right. And at the heart it is the Wild West. And we have a 10 episode series starring Anthony Hopkins, Ed Harris, Evan Rachel Wood, James Marsden. So we've got the A-list actors in this. In the TV series, you know, we mentioned Michael Crichton with the 1973 film, but we've got executive producer, writer, director, Jonathan Nolan, J.J. Abrams is involved. So, again, we've got the heavyweights in the sci-fi industry backing this property. So the pilot's entitled The Original. And in terms of some initial observations, the opening introduction was just brilliant. Because one of the, the things that comes out of the movie is it takes you a while to get a handle on who's human and who's not. So we're immediately introduced to James Marsden's Teddy as he's on the train heading into Westworld, and we naturally assume he's one of the guests. You're right. And they play with our expectations throughout the first episode. So that was just one example. Yeah. And then they use, uh, for lack of a better term, the Groundhog Day narrative device where you know the, the day repeats itself. And that's when we figure out, ah, okay, if Teddy got shot and killed and now he's alive again... He must be a host. And I love the subtlety of the people on the train has changed. So the guests that are arriving are different, even though James Marsden is waking up on the train just like he did last time. Right. And even though we don't really have a good grasp on any kind of a timeline, as you said, these androids have been programmed to play out different scenarios and participate in a little bit of improvisation. So... In other words, they will react differently to, I guess, whoever comes into their frame in the particular scene. And again, that makes for some really interesting plot points in the pilot. Yeah. If they are left alone, they will play out their exact script. But as soon as a human interferes with their script, they go off script and go off into a, a path that is able to be adapted. So, yeah, I think the possibilities for that because it's a Groundhog Day scenario, are very exciting because you have the familiar mixed in with the unanticipated. Right. And at this point, one episode, it appears we're going to follow Dolores, 
as she gradually becomes self-aware. And, and Dolores is, of course, played by Evan Rachel Wood. And we learn through the course of the episode that she is, in fact, the oldest host in the park. That was such a surprise that they held right to the end. And, of course, that led into the climactic ending, which was just amazing. I mean, it was it was almost literary in its scope. <laughs> Right. Now, we have the man in black, again, who was portrayed by Yul Brenner in the film. This time it's Ed Harris. And again, this is something that I've had a number of discussions with. Uh, I'm not so sure you and I have talked about it, but no, no, it, it seems as if the man in black in the series is a human. Yeah. And in the movie, he was an android. So another switch from our expectations. Right. And in fact, in the movie, he was the android that was really bringing the entire facility down to its knees. Right. He was the main glitch. Exactly. So here it appears that Ed Harris has been coming to this park for 30 years. And he's trying to figure out like some deeper level to it than just the enjoyment of whoever has enough money to sign up for it. Well, right. He sees it as a deep level computer game, if you will, that, requires a certain level of obsession to win let alone play for 30 years but that he just thinks there's something deeper and they do throw us a few breadcrumbs about what these other levels might be and the fact that they definitely do exist if he was able to scalp someone and find some kind of maze or some kind of clue or something that indicates that he's right, that there's a deeper level. And we get hints of it from some of the administrative staff, too, who talk about the fact that there's a goal for the guests, a goal for the development team, but a completely different and unknown goal from the management of the park that is unknown to all the other players. So that seems to play into what the Man in Black is looking for. Uh, But the other interesting thing about the Man in Black, we certainly established that the hosts cannot harm the guests right can the guests do whatever they want to each other we don't really know that yet can the guests do literally whatever they want it would appear so yeah you want to kill somebody you kill them you want to rape somebody you rape them and and those are the kinds of things that apparently this man in black has been doing which then begs the question What do the park's supervisors think about this? Clearly, they have to know this is what he's doing, that he's been coming there for 30 years. Is he such a high roller they just overlook it? Well, I look look at it like um, the series Dollhouse, Joss Whedon's show, where if you had enough money, you could pay for certain pleasures that even though it would be looked upon as morally questionable by the general populace, it was something where they look the other way because of the rich and the privileged. And the same thing is true here. No judging here. (laughs) Exactly. So Westworld is a playground for the rich. Okay. Now, the critical failure that happened 30 years prior is mentioned, and and we assume that refers to the film. But in terms of critical failures, part of what's going on in the pilot is that many of the hosts have received a new software upgrade, and it's not playing out as the supervisors intended. But the question becomes Dr. Ford played by Anthony Hopkins. And it it seems to be his park, right? I mean, he's the man in charge, right? Or he definitely is a professor emeritus at the very least. And 
you wonder, he's responsible for the software upgrades that are glitching. Is it a glitch if that's what you really intended it to do? Right, exactly. How deliberate was it on Dr. Ford's part? And I think that's going to be a central question probably for a while. Now, the other central questions revolve around Teresa Cullen, who seems to be really the manager on a day-to-day basis of the park. She wields a lot of power, and she has that conversation with her number two, talking about ulterior motives beyond simply the profit margin. And he says, yeah, I think there are. And she says, oh, well, I'd love to hear it. And then she even tells him, well, you're smart enough to figure that out. You're just not smart enough to know what they are. Yeah, he knows that there's a deeper game being played, but he doesn't know what it is. Therefore, she, he is of no help to her. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know if that means that she also doesn't know the deeper game, but she knows that he's not going to be climbing up the ladder by way of her, even if she does know the deeper game herself, because if he doesn't know it, then she's going to let him you know, flounder on his own. Right. And here's a point where they're deviating from the original source material. And I think it's just a brilliant stroke, assuming they continue with it, which I assume they will. Well, especially since they're treating it like a production team. So in addition to just having the technicians that keep the robots running, you also have almost like an entertainment group, a production team that works on the stories, you know, the entertainment value. It's like a PR group. And so you're able to have this different culture within Delos as a company. Yeah. All right. Now, what's the deal with the army of hosts that are in cold storage? I mean, it's oh, almost like a, it's like a scene out of Attack of the Clones. And you know it can't be good that they're all just standing down there. It's like the singularity waiting to happen. <laughs> and I think we know it is going to happen at some point. Yeah. Um, Now, when hiring for your small business, if you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Horse's father finds that photograph in the dirt that opens up a whole new storyline, and, and you almost think he's going to glitch because he can't really comprehend what he sees in the photo. Right. And we really have no clues about this, why this was a trigger for him. We just know that because of the programming, the reverie programming that Dr. Ford put in there, he was able to access some of his earlier personalities. And this photograph brought it out in him somehow, the Shakespearean professor that's inside him, for example. And that was a very mysterious development. 
Yeah, well, you know, you mentioned Dollhouse earlier. And again, when you look at these androids, if you think of their brain as a computer hard drive, which essentially it is, no matter how much you think you erase, there are always remnants, always artifacts left behind. And that's, of course, what happens in Dollhouse. And that may, in fact, be what's happening here to a certain extent. Oh, definitely. And the big question then becomes, are they being accessed deliberately or is it truly a glitch that is making this happen? Okay. Now, perhaps the most fascinating thing to me in the episode involves the interaction between the hosts and how they talk to each other, how they interact with each other when there are no human guests around. Right. It's interesting that the script includes these moments back at home. Are they necessary to the ongoing acceptance of the androids of their situation? Or is it just a narrative that's there in case someone's wandering out <laughs> in the uh, far regions of Westworld and just happened to come across this storyline going on at home? Right. And might it be part of their learning cycle if, in fact, they're programmed to learn? Yeah. And I think we might start to see some deviations in the script that are indicating that learning is taking place. Okay. And then finally, you know, there's that scene when the family comes upon Dolores as she's painting in that little field and the horses are nearby and she calls the little boy over, you know, puts some, some food in his hands and, and she talks to him really sweetly. Just hold your hand out. They'll eat it out of your hands. And then he looks at her. You're one of them, aren't you? You're not real. And, and that kind of crystallizes what the first episode is really about. What is real? Right. What qualifies is real even. And I love that Dolores, even though she's, she's the oldest and has the most potential for being very dangerous to the status quo, is that she doesn't seem to have the same dangers, whether she's looking at the photograph that her father shows her and says, I don't see anything, there's nothing there. Or when this boy asks her if she's real, and she kind of just ignores the question because she's not supposed to question stuff like that. So I think on the one hand, she's one of the strongest examples of an android working correctly, but she's also probably going to go off the rails the most at the same time. Well, right. And that's the question she is asked repeatedly. Have you ever questioned your reality? And have you ever lied to us? I thought that was an interesting one too. And she says, no, but is that true? I don't think it is. <laughs> yeah. But I just can't wait to have an hour to be able to watch episode two. I certainly don't want to fall behind on this show. And fortunately for me, my wife is really digging this show. And if I could go ahead and mention a recommendation for a podcast, there are, gosh, what, like we counted 20 or so last, yes. last count <laughs> fan podcasts out there for Westworld. We both work for Golden Spiral Media in addition to Den of Geek, so we're a little bit partial. But uh, there's one called Beyond Westworld, which is done by Troy Heinrichs and Aaron Peterson over at Golden Spiral Media that we would recommend. And I'm going to be guest hosting for episode three. So I'm very much looking forward to that. So <laughs> great show to talk about. And you, you got to envy anybody who has chosen that to podcast about because there's certainly a wealth of material there. But one other show that I'm going to be doing some projects with is the show that I'm going to be talking about tonight, and that's Channel Zero, a horror anthology, which I think is going to be one of these new buzzwords in television uh, after the success of American Horror Story and others, where you've got a series that is self-contained by season. 
each one telling a different story. And Channel Zero is a six-episode series that starts on October 11th. Uh, and, and by the time you hear this podcast, it will have already started. So hopefully you can catch episode one. And it's based on an internet phenomenon, which I know you've never heard of. I hadn't heard of either. It's called creepy pasta. Does that even ring a bell, Dave? Not at all. <laughs> Not even a little bit. And what they are, what creepy pasta is, is it's internet-born folktales. And it gets its name from copy and paste. So it used to be that people would find these different little stories or fake fiction that were posing as reality out on the web. And they called it copy and paste because they kept being copied and pasted on different websites. And the scary stories that people would copy and paste got the name creepypasta from that same root. And the most obvious example that people are probably already familiar with is Slenderman. Do you now? Do you know Slenderman, Dave? I'm I have sure. heard of Slenderman. I'm not sure I know anything more than that, but I have heard of him. He's a creepypasta that came about mostly through images. Didn't really have a specific tale associated with him until people started doing fan fiction about him. But in this case, Channel Zero has taken this phenomenon and made a TV show out of it, such that they're taking real creepypasta and expanding upon it to make a TV show because creepypastas are very short and succinct and by nature, they don't finish. They just kind of leave an idea out there to be expanded upon. So I think it's a great concept for a show. And this one is produced by Nick Antosca of Hannibal fame. And Max Landis is also executive producing along with him. He's uh, known for doing Chronicle, the movie and channel zero is already planned out, even though it just started for two seasons in this anthology style a la American Horror Story. So we can already count on seasons one and two taking place, six episodes each. This first one is based on a creepypasta called Candle Cove. And it's one of the few creepypastas that has a known author, because by nature, creepypastas are usually folktale in nature, and you don't know who the author is. But Dave, I need to send you the link. In fact, I'm, I'm going to see if I can figure out a way to get it into our show notes at sci-fi-fidelity.libsyn.com so that people can check it out. It's at ikerfalls.chainsawsuit.com. <laughs> How's that for a URL? <laughs> but it's basically just a fake message board where people are reminiscing about a fictional TV show that they watched as kids called Candle Cove that had all these horrifying images in it. It literally will take you about three or four minutes to read, if that. The story, uh, as it takes place on TV, it tells the story of Mike Painter, a child psychologist who's played by uh, Paul Schneider of Parks and Recreation, which is a show that my wife and I just added to our TV viewing. So it's kind of weird to see him in that comedy and then also see him here in this horror show. But he returns to his hometown after having nightmares dealing with the death of his twin brother when they were kids. And his twin brother's body was never found, but he was missing along with five other children, four or five other children who were found dead and they were missing all their teeth. So that's the creepy premise. And Fiona Shaw from True Blood plays his mother, Marla, who doesn't want him opening up old wounds. And what unfolds as he returns home is that Mike does not have as much say in the matter as you might think. He has returned home almost compelled to return home. He didn't really want to. He stayed away for years and years and he's kind of reliving this creepy moment from his childhood where he and his friends that are now grown watched this TV program, Candle Cove, which is filled with these eerie images of puppets and marionettes and pirate skeletons and 
just really, really, really creepy stuff. And for some reason, he's being compelled to remember incidences from his childhood where he and his twin brother were bullied and his twin brother wouldn't let the bully get away with it. But every time they confronted the bully, they kept getting pushed down again and again and again. And perhaps that trauma of those childhood incidents has caused something to happen, but we don't know where it's leading. All we know is that deaths will be occurring soon as we see these flashbacks. So it's just a really compelling story. And um, from that premise, Dave, do you think that it has appeal, general appeal? Well, first of all, all the Dark Angel fans are out there saying, hey, I know what they're doing with the missing teeth. What are they? What did they well, do? In that? <laughs> no, that's, that's between me and the Dark Angel fans. <laughs> I was going to say, I haven't seen that show. But well you, well, you know, look, first of all, I still find it hard to believe that I love a show like Van Helsing, mm-hmm. that I love Outcast, because I'm not a horror fan. I'm mm-hmm. really not. I mean, I saw each of the first episodes for American Horror Story and was just horrified that I didn't go on. That That's just not my cup of tea. So I find it a little strange, but then when I really examine it, and obviously I'm, I'm writing reviews for Van Helsing and Outcast for Den of Geeks, so I've really gotten to immerse myself in these shows. And it's almost as if the contemporary horror is more psychological horror right than scare tactics and blood and gore and dismemberment the way it used to be and i think we can credit some of that to the walking dead by way of being character driven even though they include the gore and of course there's plenty of gore in van helsing first of all but it is a very character driven show and i think people are learning that you can get a lot more creep factor if you actually care about the characters, sure. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. And in fact, uh, this is really this first episode that you can check out this week on sci-fi is the jumping off point because the creepypasta is so short. The entirety of it is in episode one and then they go from there. And of course the, the murders and the, the childhood trauma that Mike Painter endured is not part of the original story. It was just about this creepy TV show that people watched. And there is a payoff, like I said at the end, of what this TV show did to these kids and how others perceived the kids that watched this TV show. But it's interesting the way they do it in the show because Mike returns to meet up with old friends who also remember the show. And at a dinner party, they're talking about it. And one of the grown-ups' kids is found to be in another room watching the same show that they watched as kids that, you know, was only on the air for like two months or, or, or a very short period of time. And now it's coming back again. And you can't help but wonder, is it because Mike has returned? Has Mike returned because the phenomenon is pulling him back into his hometown? But it's really going to be an exploration of, is Mike a trustworthy narrator? How much can we trust him? How much is he responsible for what's happening? Or how much is he the only one that knows what's happening and it's just made to look like he's responsible for some of what's going on. So as with the original Creepypasta, the show ends with the explanation that when the kids watched the show in the 80s, their parents only saw the kids sitting there staring at a screen filled with static. And that's basically how this episode ends. That's how the Creepypasta ends. And much of the creepiness of the show comes from these quick clips of creepy images, whether it's from Mike's memories or from it's the TV show itself. 
just really well done. And the scariness is not in the form, like you said, Dave, that we're used to seeing with blood and gore and a serial killer on the loose. Right. And if you think about it, those of you that are a little bit older, maybe remember the 80s movie Videodrome. And I don't know if you recall that or not with Deborah Harry. No. Uh, certainly poltergeist to a certain extent with, with the little girl and the static yeah. on the TV. And then, of course, we, you know, some of these were the, the movie is just all of these. And I can't remember which one it was. All, all of these connected images that seem to be unconnected and that, you know, you watch it and you die. And heck, even an episode of Castle explored that that idea as a horror episode so yeah i think that's a great way to go but it sounds like what you're saying is that's just this one episode that's just the one episode so we we want to see where it's going to go from here and the cool thing is our editors at den of geek so much believe in this show that it's going to be a big hit for sci-fi that they worked it out so that den of geek could get an exclusive debriefing after each episode from one of the co-creators nick antosca and I was assigned that task to talk to Nick Antosca every week after each episode and debrief what happened in the episode, some of the questions that were posed. Very excited to be doing this for Den of Geek. It's going to be a an article series. It's not going to be part of our podcast or anything like that. But if you're interested in watching the show and then having a little companion reading afterwards, it's not something that we'll be reviewing. It's actually something that we'll be debriefing with one of the people that's responsible for making the show. And in fact, they're filming season two up in Winnipeg as we speak. <laughs> so it's oh. cool. It's nice to know that it's not going to be a one and done type thing. We already know it's going to have a season two. That's going to have a completely different story. Sounds great. So there's a lot of choices right now, Dave, and October was certainly chock full of choices that we could have talked about. And one of them that could have been a topic, but ended up being our interview segment was falling water and I'm actually kind of glad it ended up being an interview segment because Falling Water is a show that, if I could just encapsulate the premise for you, is... Yeah, I want to hear this. It's basically, it's basically the concept that the entire world is all dreaming parts of the same dream. So you've got one giant dream and each person's dream is a part of that and it's all self-contained and you can't tell what the bigger picture is. But there are certain people out there in the world that can cross between dreams and because of that ability can actually influence what happens in the greater dream that we're all dreaming together. And we're just introduced to three characters who have this ability, as well as a wealthy billionaire played by Zach Orth of Revolution, who is trying to tap into this power and has found one of these three people to try and figure out how this ability works and whether or not exploit it, whether there are others out there trying to exploit it is where the major conflict comes in the story. And we were fortunate enough to get David Ajala, who plays one of the best characters in the show, my, one of my favorites from the opening episode anyway. He plays Burton, who is a fixer of sorts for a financial services company. He basically takes any problems that might occur with some indiscretions with prostitutes or, or someone trying to do some inside training and either make it go away or bring it to the boss's attention before it can cause problems for the company. And that's a pretty cool concept for a character right there. Right, Dave? <laughs> well, I love his character. And yeah, as you said, he's, and he's clearly very good at his job because we've got the one quick scene where the woman that he apparently works with 
momentarily doubts that he's really onto something and he just says have i ever been wrong and she said no you're right you haven't yeah she says you have an unerring eye for malfeasance which i thought was a great phrase so uh yeah david ajala you might recognize him from the wachowskis jupiter ascending he was also on the the beowulf television series and so here's david ajala who spoke to us from london while he was in the middle of production for a a play in the West End. So take a listen. The subject of this month's interview segment is David Ajala, who really steals the show in USA's new mind-bending thriller, Falling Water. He also has several genre cred roles, including parts in 2008's The Dark Knight, The Wachowskis' Jupiter Ascending, and an appearance in the Black Mirror episode, The Waldo Moment, one of my favorite shows. David has a starring role in Falling Water where he plays Burton, an ex-military man, now the head of security at a highly successful financial firm, who, among other things, helps his employers avoid scandal. He's one of the three characters who can enter other people's dreams, and this ability causes him to question his reality while being sought out by those who wish to control his abilities. So welcome, David Ajala. Hey, Mike. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And, of course, uh, we're so happy you could join us because we missed you at New York Comic Con. I know. Ah, dude, I would have <laughs> loved to have been there. Honestly, you know, being at the New York Comic Con, that's something I wanted to tick off of my bucket list. <laughs> but I'm doing, I'm doing a play at the moment in London. And, um, yeah, I was speaking to Gail and heard about it on set when we were in New York, just prior to New York Comic Con. And she told me that, you know, the cast would be going and I was just, oh, man, I was so bummed out that I wasn't able to do it. But it's all good. It's all good. My team, I was there in spirit with my fallen water family. Exactly. And we very much enjoyed seeing the show as a sneak peek on USA Network. So we got to see the first episode. But it's Wonderful. starting officially this week. And right. the New York Comic Con trailer that if people were lucky enough to see that, and I think it's posted online shows that there's plenty of conflict to come where you're actually going to be fighting with your co-dreamers. <laughs> and right. that goes beyond the psychological disturbances that were depicted in that opening episode. So how much have they told you and how much can you tease about where falling water is headed? Well, I mean, uh, the first episode is initially there to lay down the foundation of the world the rules in the world. And when I say the world, I'm talking about the waking world, but then also the the dream world. So it's just going to lay out a a, a blueprint of understanding and sow a few seeds, which will eventually bear a lot of fruit throughout the season. I think it's really important that the, the rules are sort of established early on. So then the show can really take flight when we start breaking all those rules, especially as the character Burton becomes more in tune with, you know, his ability to go from uh, his waking world into his dream world. You know, it's a real skill that he starts to embrace. And um, I think he just uses it to really start to search for answers. And, I mean, look, the course of true love never did run smooth. (laughs) Midsummer Night's Dream. He's pursuing his woman and he's trying to find his woman who he loves. But he is going to be taken to the pit of despair. It's already such an emotional journey, too. And and given the complex nature of the concept behind the show, do you have a 
approach that you like about knowing how much your character is about to go through? I mean, do you like to not know anything or do they tell you some things in advance so that you can characterize it that way? Uh, so, uh, basically the showrunner and creative, the show, Blake Masters, he was a wonderful man to work with. He was always, he, he was never really forthcoming with giving us too much information and it was fun because whenever we would ask him questions, especially myself, trying to understand a few character things, he would always have this little twinkle in his eyes and glee of knowing that he had all this information but wasn't willing to share it. <laughs> and I suppose, I suppose it did as, it, I mean, speaking for myself, it did me good. I only knew what my character was experiencing from episode to episode and nothing beyond that. I mean, the actor in me, and the slight control freak in me would have loved to just understood as much as possible. But I think it, it lends itself to the uncertainty, uncertainty, sorry, of this character navigating his way and trying to make sense of things. I, too, was trying to understand and make sense of things. And I think it just keeps you very present from moment to moment. Well, it's interesting that you say that David Ajala is all about control, because Burton appears to be all about control as well, whether it's in his own life or his role within the firm. Is it compelling to play this kind of character as it is for us to watch him on the screen? Because he seems to be very much a slow burn, almost like you can see the emotions behind there, but but they're barely being withheld. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... It's really interesting you should say that, Mike, because I found with Burton, the interesting thing and and the challenge for me with understanding the character and just breathing life into the character was trying to get into the headspace of someone who has a real internal monologue. You know, I mean, we as humans, we as people, we, we never really delve into speaking about our emotions from moment to moment. and And even being able to articulate them can be a challenge in itself. And I find with Burton, he's someone who, he's a real thinker. And also, he's someone who likes to calculate. And he's very meticulous with things. And he likes to be in control. So he's the kind of guy that would walk into a room. And the first thing he would do is just work out where all the exit points are. Should in case something happens, he's able to not run from it, but escape. So he's not caught in harm's way. It was also a real challenge to just really allow this guy's thoughts and feelings to just bleed through unconsciously, you know. Oh, yeah. That's a perfect way to put it, too, I think. Yeah, I, th- I think it, it had to be like that because otherwise, it, I mean, for me personally, I don't think it would have worked the same way. So when you do see a guy who is so well put together, who challenges everything with pure logic, when you do see him being taken through the pit of despair and his emotions being really raw because of his feelings for for this woman and his life just being turned upside down. You see a real contrast and you see a character who's really being challenged emotionally, physically, spiritually. I think that was something I wanted to have the courage to embrace and to go for. Well, I think it came across the best when you said to the woman in red, I love you. And she says, say it again and I'll leave. And then you say it again. But you have this, yeah. but you have this look on your face like I'm gonna say this and you're gonna accept it. <laughs> very very powerful moment. That's a beautiful thing. Thank you, sir. And speaking of which, uh, one of the lines I really loved from the first episode is when, in response to Jones saying we're all good men till we're not, Burton says then we're all just how God made us. Right. And yeah. 
how, how much of what Burton says to his coworkers does he actually believe, and how much is he just playing the game within this kind of despicable <laughs> bunch? <laughs> That's brilliantly put. Um, I mean, they are a despicable bunch, and they're, they're, they're a group of people who are paid way too much money and who squander everything. Because we have to remember, Burton is an ex-military man, so he's been on the battlefield where he's faced death on many occasions and for Burton being on a battlefield he was always doing it for a great cause for the greater good and that's to defend humanity and to to defend humanity and, and to fight for, for peace for justice and to protect there was a real purpose behind his actions but now here he is even though you know intellectually he's more than capable of doing this job He's now working in an environment where there's no real need to be there. There's no real driving force to be here except for cleaning up people's mess. Yeah. And, you know, I just think every now and then he's very aware that he's never going to be like them. And they, they come from two different worlds. So he plays a game with it. But I also think that Burton is a man who is efficient with words and economical with words. So he only speaks when necessary. But I do feel that whenever he does say certain things, attention needs to be paid because yeah. <laughs> he won't repeat himself. That sounds about right. Uh, now, Will Yun Lee plays a Korean cop in this series, but it doesn't necessarily matter that he's Korean. He just is, which makes it more culturally realistic. Right. And likewise, your character is British and black, but that's just how it is. There's no agenda there and... and it's just the context that we're given. So how is it for you as an actor to portray this sort of role where you can create your own context free of preconceptions? I think that's one of the reasons why I said yes to this project. You know, Having that kind of freedom is so healthy for the soul as an, as an actor. Actually, when I first auditioned for it, I was auditioning, auditioning for a few other things. And you know, I, I thought it was a really cool gig, and there was a couple other things which were really brilliant. And then when it worked out, I was just so happy that this project came my way. Because when I read it on the page, I just saw a character. I saw a person who, a, a regular person in extraordinary circumstances, trying to make sense of everything. And uh, I remember getting the role. And then, uh, I kid you not, uh, it was two months down the line of filming. I was having a conversation with Blake and a couple other people were, were involved in this conversation. And Blake Masters, he said to me that the character of Burton was originally written for a white American male in his 40s. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, I just thought it was so cool how, you know, whatever I did in my audition struck a chord and allowed them to think outside of the box. I mean, it's a wonderful compliment. And it, it's just, I'm just very grateful for it. But then at the same time, it's just a reflection of New York City. New York City is a melting pot of so much diversity. Exactly, exactly. It, 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 just, it just makes sense to, to reflect the environment which you're creating. It's interesting, too, considering the same casting folks said, we need a Zach Orth character. Hey, I think Zach Orth is available. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but Will Yun Lee actually mentioned the same thing, that he found it very refreshing. So, yes, yeah. it is. And Will... I, I can't just um, not hear Will's name and not big him up. Wonderful <laughs> guy. What a wonderful, wonderful guy to work with. His energy and his spirit is so beautiful. And he's so talented. 
and I've been watching some of the episodes because, I mean, fortunately for us, we've, we've been given a couple of the episodes to kind of look at. And Will, Will's, Will's work in it is just really wonderful. And he, he's just, um, he's super talented. And it's just great because he comes on set and he's so passionate and he's so excited and enthusiastic about the work. It just It just rubs off on you. And I'm sure Lizzie is very relieved not to play someone who's completely off her rocker, only slightly <laughs> off her rocker. <laughs> Lizzie is my homegirl. She's, she's so cool. She really is. And, I mean, fortunately for us, I mean, we don't just get on as a cast. Like, we just blend. We vibe so well with each other, you know. I mean, like, the love that we kind of have for each other is just, just really sweet and really wonderful. And, you know, I mean, Lizzie's the... Out of the three of us, of course, Lizzie's the only girl, but she's like a, she's like a sister to us, you know, and she's just, she's wonderful to work with. Now, do you prefer uh, Burton's tailored suits to, say, the Beowulf wardrobe or the feathers, <laughs> in, the feathers for Ibis? <laughs> <laughs> a, little bit, a little bit easier in the makeup chair, I imagine. Definitely. Um, Ibis, Jupiter Ascending. Um, I was in the makeup chair every morning for an hour and 30 minutes oh gosh <laughs> it was it was quite a process but look it's, you're working with the wachowskis and then as i'm getting this paint work done all over my body i'm having conversations with channing tatum to the left of me and then mila kunis to the right so you know it's um having them as company it was yeah it, it was a good way to pass time definitely <laughs> but i definitely prefer the suits I like yes the suits. <laughs> well now you've played a wide range of characters throughout your career you're in fact in the West End of London quite a bit. Is there a role or a character type that you'd really like a chance to interpret either on stage or on television? I would. You know, it's funny because the thing is, I find sometimes when I have an idea of a character that I would like to play, I, I sometimes just go for an obvious, not obvious, but um, sometimes it's not outside of the box. One of the reasons why I love like my management team in Los Angeles and here in the UK is because a lot of the roles that they put me up for, I look at them and read them on the page and think, hang on, this this is really cool, but I can't see myself playing it. <laughs> and those are the roles that I love and I grow to really, really love. So, I mean, in terms of roles across the board from TV, film to theater, it's whatever role scares me a little bit. That's the role that I'll take. Like this play which I'm doing at the moment at the Donmar Warehouse. It's about Muhammad Ali's life. And he's he's won um, a huge boxing match to become the world champion, world heavyweight champion. He's beaten Sonny Liston. And instead of going around town and partying, he goes back to his hotel room to kick back with his three close friends, Malcolm X, Sam Cooke, and Jim Brown. <laughs> it's a wonderful play. And um, I, I'm playing Jim Brown. And the thing is, you know, I felt a real sense of responsibility and I was slightly, I was a bit iffy about doing it because it scared me. And I'm so happy I said yes. So those are the roles that I want to be playing, the roles which I find slightly scary. And I feel like I have to climb some sort of mountain to get there. Yeah, personal challenge, right? <laughs> definitely, yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, we are we're definitely looking forward to more Falling Water. Can't wait to see the second episode. And Great. thank you so much for joining us for this little chat. Thank you, Mike. And I'll see you on the next one. All right. So some great stuff there. I'm glad he was able to share at least a little bit of insight into his character. And of course, you know, he's learning about the character along with us this early in the series. And that's, that's what's great when we talk about 
the show with the characters is that they create their own unique perspective, which helps them create their character. And then the writers tend to start adapting the character to the actor's performance. But a lot of great shows that you can enjoy, and we hope you enjoyed our introduction to some of the shows that may be not as familiar to you that you might want to check out. But that's going to be it for this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity. We hope you enjoyed our discussion. You can keep it going all month long by following us on social media, on Facebook and Twitter as Sci-Fi Fidelity. And in November, we'll be discussing Dirk Gently and, fingers crossed, Nat Geo's Mars, and hopefully talking to somebody from the sleeper hit of the season, Van Helsing. But in the meantime, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you access it. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Plus, we take suggestions for future topics. In fact, we could use a few. The uh, mailbag is getting a little empty. You can email us at scififidelity at gmail.com to make some suggestions for topics. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next month. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 